Welcome to the Ruby Book Club podcast, where we read an hour of Ruby Book each week and dissect it with you. I'm Saran, developer and founder of Code Newbie. And I'm Nadia, developer and director at Ignition Works. So this week we're on to chapter eight of Pat Shaughnessy's Ruby Under a Microscope, and it's all about blocks. We're going to learn some history along the way to do with closures, and we're going to find out which is faster, a while loop or passing a block to each. And remember that you can follow us on Twitter at Ruby Book Club. And if you're reading along and you're on Twitter, tweet at us and let us know what you think of the book so far. We'd love to hear from you. So how did you find this week's reading? I really liked it. And what I liked about it was, so it was a new topic. So there were some new things that were introduced. But there was also a lot of references to so many different things that we've seen before. So Yav instructions, stack frames, all those sort of things. So it was like a refresher and also there was a bit of history in there, which was nice. What about you? Um, It was okay. Mm-hmm. It was okay. I liked it more towards the end. The first half, and full disclaimer, I was really, really tired when I did the reading. So I was kind of like, uh, do I want to take like a nap? And is my brain really working? Mm. So I think a lot of it was just kind of me just being really tired. But um, as soon as I saw the first Yarv instruction snippet, I was like, oh, crap, <laughs> this again. <laughs> so I kind of like immediately felt very defensive and guarded when I first saw that. Um, but it was okay. It was, I felt like I had to work a little bit harder than I have in recent episodes anyway, Mm -hmm. to really understand the relationship between all the structures and the YARV instructions. And I think a big part of it is in the past, one thing we've always talked about is how is how the diagrams really build up Mm. and you can see like each piece adding on to another. And because for this one, there were kind of a lot of pieces, Mm -hmm. I don't think we ever really had a diagram where we saw everything all at once. We had descriptions of how it looked all together, but I don't think we actually saw the way like every single part of it worked. And so I found myself having to go back and forth between the graphics and trying to like build it myself in my head. And actually having said that, I do remember having to go back over some of the diagrams a couple of times, particularly when to do with the environment pointer and working out which bit was relating to a stack frame. Because there was a part where I was like, is there a new stack frame? And then I realized it was a ladder thing. So it wasn't the most straightforward and obvious set of diagrams. So yeah, we'll talk through them now and see how we go. Mm -hmm. Cool. So we start with a brand new chapter. We're on chapter eight, and it's called How We Borrowed a Decades-Old Idea from Lisp. So we start off, well, part of this episode is a little bit of history, and we are specifically focusing, at least for now anyway, on blocks and how blocks are really, really useful, and they're very common, and they're great because they allow you to pass a code snippet to innumerable methods like each and detect and inject, and we can use the yield keyword and write our own stuff, and it's really awesome. However, even though it is really cool and everybody loves it, uh, Pat notes that it's actually a pretty old concept, and it is based on this older concept called closures, which was first invented by Peter J. Landon in 1964, which was a little bit after the first version of Lisp was created by John McCarthy in 1958. So even though Ruby is awesome and modern and really cool, this particular idea anyway is actually pretty old. Mm -hmm. So blocks are Ruby's implementation of closures, and we're going to talk a little bit about what they look like and how they work and what they're all about. And I have to admit, I don't know if it's if it's safe to admit this, but I don't really use blocks very much. I feel like I should. I don't know how often you use them, Nadia, but 
I don't know, maybe I'm just not writing very sophisticated and powerful code, but I don't, I don't really, I don't find them in my code bases very often. What about you? So first of all, the Ruby Book Club is a safe space. So you can <laughs> Thank always you. admit whatever you want to admit. Unless it's <laughs> I hate Ruby, then maybe we should talk about that. <laughs> no, no, we can never say that. No. In terms of blocks, you probably use them more than you think in the sense that in all your Rails pages, you have the yield. So all the templates. Yeah, that, that's that, true. That's blocks. Yeah. And also I think I think when we call like map and each, that's passing a block to things. So you do have that. Oh. However, mm. I, it is rare that I would define a method, my own method that would take a block. Right. And yeah. That's it's funny because I, mean. I was recently working on this RSS feed generator thing and I was thinking, hmm, really a sophisticated developer would be making a block <laughs> and passing in these these podcast episodes and doing it that way but I'm not quite sure how to do that effectively mm. so I'm doing it a simpler way for mm-hmm. now <laughs> yes make it what, what are the rules make it work make it right make it yeah, fast so that I'm, I'm making it work at the moment <laughs> yes that's the most important one so with this reading I was interested but also compared to other readings it didn't feel quite as like relevant and exciting to me personally because I don't really feel like they're a big part of my my toolkit so We start by looking at how Ruby represents blocks, and it does so using a C structure called rblockt. Have we, we've, we've seen this before, right? I don't think so. Like briefly, like I thought we saw it as part of something. Yeah, because when I saw it, I was like, I don't think we talked about you, but I think we've, we've seen you around the neighborhood. It it probably was mentioned in around chapter three like that sort of chapter on. yeah it's just i don't remember the underscore t bit like i feel like there was some there was mm. a, a structure a control structure to do with blocks but i just don't right. recognize yeah. rb underscore block underscore t yeah yeah so we start with this rb block t and we know that each block in ruby must consist a piece of ruby code which means that it has to internally have a set of compiled yarv byte code instructions my absolute favorite thing and so we start with listing 8-1 which goes through i feel like this is the same block example mm-hmm. we've used throughout this book right yeah okay um and it reads 10 dot times do str equals the string the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog puts str end so very simple block we've been using this block throughout the entire reading and in figure 8.2 we see how that maps to the rb block t structure and how that in turn maps to the yarv bytecode instructions so on the right we have a box labeled rb block t and inside we see this thing called iseq which what is how do you do you just spell that is that like isec and we and we learned earlier in the book that it stood for instruction sequence okay yes yes thank you and isec points to a set of yarv instructions on the left that maps to the method that we see with the quick brown fox jumping over the lazy dog and a bunch of set call get call put self all that yarv instruction stuff <laughs> the next thing that pat talks about is how blocks can access variables in the surrounding or parent scope and so we've got example 8-2 and he shows some code where the first line is str, so str equals the quick brown fox. And then the next line introduces a block. So we say 10.times do. 
Then we define a second variable, string2, so str2 equals jumps over the lazy dog, and then we do puts and we interpolate in string, so the str that we defined outside of the block, and then we interpolate in str2. And so this is Pat's way of showing us that the block, not only can it obviously access variables defined within its scope, it can also access variables outside of its scope, so it will be able to successfully interpolate in the first half of the sentence. And Pat says that this ability is one of the things that makes blocks useful, so we can access things outside of its scope. So I thought this part was really, really cool. The part where he talks about how blocks have dual personalities and this idea that they kind of behave like separate methods, but then they can also be part of the surrounding function or method. I thought that was really cool. I feel like one of the reasons why I'm, I haven't really used blocks very often, at least not like very purposefully, is partly because I don't I don't know if I really appreciate what they mm. do. So just in that one paragraph, it was like, uh, oh, that is pretty cool that you can do both things. You know, so Pat's kind of maybe unintentionally educating me and uh, validating how awesome blocks are. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah, as I was reading this chapter, I was almost having this newfound appreciation for blocks and thinking, oh, they are yeah. really clever and smart. It is really cool that you can do these things. <laughs> yeah. So then we move on to stepping through how Ruby calls a block. And so we're going to look at an example to see how they are implemented. So we go back to example 8-2 and we look at what happens as Ruby executes each line. So first of all, we've got str equals the quick brown fox. So we know that Yav is going to store that local variable on its own internal stack. And then we have this thing called the environment pointer, which we saw a few chapters ago, and that's how Yav tracks the location of str, so it knows which scope it's in. And once again, we have our RB control frame T structures, which represent each scope. So we have figure 8-3, and that shows on the right an RB control frame T structure, which represents the stack frame for the top level scope. And inside that, we've got the environment pointer, and that environment pointer points to a square on the left, which represents Yav's internal stack. And inside we see a gray box, which represents the locals variable table. And inside str is defined. So then the next thing that happens is Ruby gets to 10 dot times do. And Pat says that before we actually execute that line, Ruby creates and initializes an RB block T structure. So it sees it's at a block and so it first creates that new scope. And so in figure 8-4, we see the addition of an RB block T above the original RB control frame T structure. And so there's a pointer from the RB control frame T structure pointing up to the RB block T structure. And inside that, we see the ISEC pointer, which is not pointing to anything just yet, but there's also an environment pointer, which also points to the same locals table that the EP in the RB control frame T structure points to. Now we get to the times call. And so because as we learned earlier, we're entering a new scope. So Yav is going to create a new frame on its internal stack. So we've got, and at this point, I, I didn't really notice straight away where the new stack frame was. And so mm -hmm. what's happened in figure 8-5, on the left where we had the Yav internal stack, originally we just had one set of 
it almost looks like a ladder that was beside yeah, the locals yeah. box and now there's a mm-hmm. duplicate of that ladder on top to represent mm-hmm. the next stack frame and yeah. on the right we've got another rb control frame t structure which points to this second stack frame and now this bit was a bit confu- mm. i think i got what you were referring to when you said earlier on there wasn't a diagram that showed everything all together because at this point it would have been right. useful to still have the rb control frame t structure from the original yes. scope but it's gone exactly and so you have to just take a yeah. moment to realize okay we're just focusing in on this new scope but there is another rb control frame t structure that's there for the for the parent scope the top level scope we're just not Mm -hmm. seeing it right now yeah because on first glance it almost looks like the rb control frame t like jumped up yeah and it moved from the first you know the first yarv instruction bit to the one on top of it so at first i was like wait a minute where did something something move something change and then i realized okay we're just not showing it yeah so now we have another RB control frame T structure, and that's the stack frame for the internal fixed num dot times C code. So remember, times is defined in the Ruby C code, and it's defined on the fixed num class. So then the last thing that happens is that the code implements yield because it's going to internally call the block each time it moves through the loop. So 10 times it's going to mm-hmm. put this string. And so figure 8-6 shows a third stack frame. So what happens here on the left, so we had the two ladders. So on the bottom ladder, it's got the top level scope and that locals table with STR defined. Then we've got the ladder in the middle, which has nothing defined on it because it was it was just the call out to the times method. And then we now have a third ladder thing on top and this has its own locals table and that has the definition of str2, so the second half of the string, and it also has ep in there. Now what that ep is, is what happens is Ruby's internal yield code copies the ep from the block into this new stack frame. And so this is how the code inside the block accesses both the the variables defined in its scope and also defined in the top level scope so with 8-4 we start with the rb control frame t and then that up arrow that's pointing into rb block t is that just basically saying we're copying the ep into the rb block t no that up arrow is just the stack frame it's like the chain of uh control frame structures okay i wish there was like consistency in how the arrows are used (laughs) because i'm like is it copying is it pointing are you i'm not always not very clear on that okay so we have that ep right and then we have the EP and the RB block mm-hmm. T. Both of those are pointing to local string or local STR. Yeah, so they're both pointing to right? the locals table. Okay, so they both know about the locals table and specifically in our context, they know what STR stands Yes, for. and to clarify, they both know about the locals table that's in the top level stack. Right, the first time we define STR. Yes, Okay, cool. So now going to 8-6, we have an EP in our R block T, which is pointing to the locals table where there is a local variable called str2, Mm -hmm. which is inside of our block. Good so far? Yes. But the only thing to say here Mm -hmm. is that I think this arrow is a bit misleading because it's, I think that arrow signifies the copying 
of the EP to the Yav internal stack. So in 8.4, it's the same EP that it points to the locals STR on the top level stack. And this time it's saying, I'm taking what's in the EP and I'm copying it into the, the Yav instructions. Okay, so that RB block T, ISAC, EP, that whole thing is not actually part of the, what is it, like the, the final, what is it, the top new stack frame. I guess what I'm trying to understand is, is this saying, okay, the whole, on the right side of 8.6, where we see the R, RB control frame T, and then under that we have the RB block T, mm-hmm. is that whole thing the stack frame for the third and final like the, the the third and final part of the Yarv internal stack? Or is it do you see what I'm saying? It's not like yeah. are these new? No, so the so the RB block T is not new. It's the same one from eight dash four. And it's not related to the third and final stack. So then why is it pointed to the third and final stack? Because it sits between the first RB control frame structure that we saw in 8-4 and the last one that we see in 8-6. Um, what? Okay, <laughs> so if you were to have one diagram that showed everything, mm-hmm. on the right, you'd have, on the bo- from the bottom up, you've ha- you'd have RB control frame T with an EP. You'd have an arrow going up. You'd have RB block T with ISEC and EP. And then you'd have an arrow going up again and you'd have RB control frame T with nothing in it. Right, yes. Then, on the left, you'd have what you see in figure 8-6. So, the three ladders, locals STR, and then at the top, locals STR2 with EP. In terms of where things are pointing... Wait, sorry. So, figure 8-6, the thing that we're missing is the very first RB control frame T with the EP. Yes. That's the missing one. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if I have that, then I have the all the control frame block code, whatever. I have, like, everything I need on the yeah. right side. Okay, got it. Okay, continue. Continue with my the, the diagram thing? Yes. yes, it was very and good. And then the only thing I would say, now this is my understanding, is that ignore the arrows that Pat has drawn from the control frame structures to the Yav internal stack. Inside okay. the bottom RB control frame T and the RB block T, both EPs, are pointing to the locals colon str, so the bottom locals table. Okay. And then what happens is as soon as we enter the block, there is some internal code that says, take everything that the EP in the RB block T structure is pointing to and copy that information into the second locals table so the 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 scope mm. that the block is in. So you have access to all of that stuff. Got it. Okay, so it's not, just to be clear, it's not a pointer. It's actually copying the information over. Hmm. If I read the words, because I'm now thinking maybe it's still a pointer (laughs) because it says it copies the EP from the block into the new stack frame. So maybe it is just copying the pointer. Mm. Because maybe what it's saying is I'm copying the environmental pointer 
into the in Yarve internal stack. And that's why you've got that arrow yeah. from the top. Exactly. Yeah. So it is a point Exactly. Because that's why I was like, wait a minute, but but why is... Okay. So the EP, like the pointer basically, is copied into the internal yes. stack. And then that pointer points back to our very first locals table with the STR, yes. which is how we know what that mm-hmm. is. That was... Very confusing, and I'm so glad you're smarter than me. And I'm not smarter than you, and I also hope our listeners. That was awesome. I'm not smarter than you, and I also. No, that makes a lot of sense. (laughs) I hope our listeners were able to follow that. (laughs) Let us know if not. Because I was staring at that for so long, I was like, I guess there's two sets, and everything's just okay. Um, So that was really helpful. Thank you for that. So taking a moment to step away from the code, we're going to do a little history lesson. This is talking about borrowing an idea from 1975, so where this whole thing came from. So Pat does a little recap of what we talked about and points out that the RB block T structure contains two really important values. One is the ISEC pointer which is a pointer to a snippet of YARV code instructions. And the second one is the EP pointer, which we we spent a lot of time talking about and figuring out where it came from. And that is a pointer to a location on YARV's internal stack and the location that was at the top of the stack when the block was created. So these two things are super important. And in figure 8-7, we see... um, yeah, I think just like a piece of this. So we have the R block T structure on the right with the ISEC value and the EP value. And those two things are pointing to their corresponding values. So EP is pointing to the YARV internal stack and the ISEC is pointing to the actual YARV instructions. So Pat points out that when we talk about the EP, it might seem not very important. He says that it's very technical, but an unimportant detail. And uh, he says that actually the EP is a profoundly important part of Ruby internals. And this is where we talk a little bit more about this idea of closures. So we look at the definition of closure, which was established in 1975 by Gerald J. Sussman and Guy L. Steele Jr., who created Scheme, which is what is that a again? dialect of Lisp. Thank you, a dialect of Lisp. And they write, In order to solve this problem, we introduce the notion of a closure, which is a data structure containing a lambda expression and an environment to be used when that lambda expression is applied to arguments. And so, first of all, this really helped me appreciate what was going on. Um, So we call out two important parts of this definition. One is a lambda expression. And this is a function that takes a set of arguments. And the second important part of this definition is an environment to be used when calling that lambda or function. So when I saw this, I thought, huh, this is interesting. Because for their definition of a lambda expression, isn't that just a method that takes arguments? Like, isn't that just like what a method is? Yeah. It's a function that takes arguments, yeah. Right, yeah. And it made me think like, I thought part of the definition of a function is that it can take arguments. So I was a little, a little interested and a little confused on the distinction, but um, I think he's just keeping okay. it broader to... because a lambda is typically a function yeah. which could it doesn't necessarily have to be a Ruby method. It could be any sort of thing, but a, a method is a function. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And I was like, hmm, okay. Um, so here, Pat calls out these two things and gets into this definition because we're going to relate them back to the internal implementation of 
a block. So in figure 8-8, Pat shows us that same snippet of the ISEC pointer and the environment pointer. And he says that these two things correlate uh, with the definition of a closure. So he says that ISEC is a pointer to a lambda expression, which is that uh, function or code snippet. And he says that EP is a pointer to the environment to be used when calling that lambda or function, because that's where we find out about our local variables and all that good stuff. So if we follow that logic and think about that definition of a closure, we can see that blocks are Ruby's implementation of closures. So that is pretty cool. Indeed. And so now we have an experiment Experiment 8-1, which says which is faster, a while loop or passing a block to each. And so what Pat wants to do is he wants to add up 1 through 10, 1 million times in two different ways. So 1 is using a while loop in Ruby. And we can see that in example 8-6. And the second way is using a block with each in example 8-7. And so in example 8-8, we see the benchmarking code for the while loop. So Pat sets up 1 million iterations of it. And then we see that that takes just under half a second using Ruby 2-0 on Pat's laptop. And then we have example 8-9 where we also benchmark 1 million iterations of the block. And that takes 0.75 seconds. And so what we see here is that it takes... Ruby 71% more time to call the block 10 times compared to going through the while loop 10 times. And so the reason why using the block is slower is because there are a few things that have to happen when we call a block. So first of all, internally, we need to find the range.each method. And when we do that, we have to create a new RB block T structure as we saw. We need to set the EP as we also saw in the opening of this chapter, which references the environment. And then we also need to pass the block call to each. And so every time we go around the loop in Ruby, we're also creating a new stack frame on Yav's internal stack. And we call the blocks code. And we also copy the environment pointer from the block to the new stack frame. Whereas when we have a while loop, we don't do any of that stuff. We just need to keep resetting the program counter each time we go around the loop. There's no method calls, there's no stack frames, there's no RB block T structures. And then this next section I really appreciated because I feel like it's something that's been yes. missing from the book. And we yeah. finally got something which was a bit more detail on why and when we would care about this. So, you mm -hmm. know, Pat starts by saying that 71%, that is seems like a large performance penalty. And you might want to think about using a while loop if you've got a time when the code that you're working on, for example, is time sensitive, but there's not anything else expensive around it. So it's pretty safe to just use an old fashioned while loop. But then Pat says something I really appreciate, which is that if you think about it, when you talk about performance of Ruby applications and Ruby on Rails websites, the things that affect performance are normally database queries, network connections, and other things, and not Ruby's execution speed. That's often a small mm -hmm. slice of the whole pie. And, yeah. and I just highlighted the sentence that says, it's rare that Ruby's execution speed has an immediate direct impact on your application's overall performance. And we maybe think yeah. of when people complain about Ruby being slow, and I always wonder, exactly. is it Ruby or is it how you've done it? 
and, yeah. you know, or there are other things and you think it's Ruby. And then Pat also says that, you know, if you're using Rails, then the Ruby code is even more of a, a small piece of a, a large system. And that Rails mm-hmm. itself is probably using many blocks and iterators behind the scenes just when you're doing things like a simple get request, for example. So mm-hmm. let alone mm-hmm. the, the code that you write yourself. And so I just I just really, really like that session. And I wish there were more of them throughout the book because it was like, ah, I guess, you know, if I'm stressing over a block, it's probably not the thing I need to worry about most times. Although there is relatively a big performance implication. Yes, absolutely. I love that so much because at first, okay, so were you expecting the 71% increase in time? No, not that much. Because I looked at, yeah, same. I thought it'd be like, well, I was, I don't know what I expected, but I was rooting for Ruby. I was hoping that it was going to be like, aha, see, it's not even that much of a difference. Um, But it was way bigger than I thought it was I was also wondering whether there'd be a twist and it wouldn't be as long or something or something clever going on but obviously no Mm -hmm. (laughs) it was it was a black and white as on the page (laughs) yeah and I absolutely love that part as well when he talks about okay this is this probably doesn't really matter for you but it also brought up a really good point because so far we've been really talking about Ruby using Ruby just by itself and we've been assuming that all the Ruby we're writing is you know just you know alone and when I code in Ruby, I'm always coding in the context of Rails. So this makes me wonder, huh, when people complain that Ruby is slow, do they sometimes mean that like Rails is slow? Because maybe Rails is using, you know, each more than or like blocks more than uh, while loops. Like It made me curious about the relationship between just Ruby and Ruby on Rails and the trade-offs of using that framework. Um, and and in, the, in the context within the context of people complaining about Ruby being slow. So this week, the reading for me was... Mm, I'm going to give it a five. Whoa. I know, I know. That's low, yo. It is. It is, for, especially for the most recent episode. That's pretty, that's pretty low. Yeah, I feel like that whole diagram thing. I mean, honestly, like if you hadn't walked me through that, I definitely would not have. I would not have gotten that at all. So that to me is a that was pretty big. So I'm gonna give it a five. What about you? Definitely reading this. So you know how sometimes we read through together and then it makes our scores go mm-hmm. higher because I'm like, oh my god, this yeah. is actually amazing. I've actually gone in the other way because I realized yeah. it was Same. quite difficult. It was quite hard work. And whereas you were tired when you were reading doing the reading I was very excited and in a really good mood so I think that made me more patient oh, but now I'm just like mm, okay it was a bit it was a bit tricky and the diagrams weren't we, we had to piece a lot of things together so I think I'm gonna give yeah. it oh a six can I we don't do halves do we nope, okay I'm gonna no give half. it a six because I'm gonna do Got relative to, okay. to I'm thinking of past readings what I've given sevens and eights and nines so I'm gonna give it a six okay so we want to know, what did you think of the reading this week? Tweet us your score at Ruby Book Club and tell us about how you plan to use the takeaways from this episode in your next project. See you next week. Cheerio. Cheerio.